This is the Blossom of Thought podcast, a podcast about the body, mind, and soul. And your host is Impilo Kambule. The rebirth of civilization in Europe began in the 15th century. At this time, Africa and Asiatic civilizations far outstripped Europe, says W.E. Du Bois. And uh, today I am joined by Sister Maxine, who will be speaking to us about how uh, the United Kingdom was overdeveloped or was uh, developed by Africa, which was a process of underdevelopment of Africa. And hence, uh, Africa is in the crisis that it is in in various dimensions. Sister Maxine is a committed Pan-Africanist born in England of Jamaican parentage. She describes herself as an African born away from home. She is a member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, founded by the father of Pan-Africanism, Osage for Kwame Nkrumah. She is a community activist seeking to build the racial justice for people of African descent in England. She is an MA in African history. Sister Maxine, welcome to the show. Greetings, brother, and thank you so much uh, for having me, and good evening to all the listeners, sisters, brothers, and comrades. We are glad to finally have you on the show, and we are happy that you will commit to this Pan-African project and to come and record here for our audience so that we can speak about this subject. Recently, we've just had the king, I mean, the queen kicking the bucket and ending the Elizabethan or the second Elizabethan rule in England. You know, it has been said that the, the empire is a place where the sun never sets. To talk about that, I want us to begin with just a little bit of introduction before we dive deep into the subject of uh, colonialism, slavery of England, of Africans, just to talk about how it's like for you living in England at this time, uh, when the Queen has just passed on and uh, King Charles has ascended to the throne, and how it's been like being born and growing up in England, just briefly. Yes, my brother. Well, I mean, it's been a really interesting um, uh, September because, uh, you know, uh, Great Britain, England, you know, is seen as, you know, one of the most democratic countries in the world, one of the most liberal countries in the world. But, you know, since the the passing of the Queen, you know, there's only been one view that that's been um, put over and it's on every news channel on every radio station, you know, it's on the walls everywhere, you know, and that is, um, you know, what a great and wonderful and gentle woman she was, and we must mourn her her, her death, uh, you know, um, and she should forever be remembered as, as you know, this, this great benevolent uh, woman. But that's not really been the experience, I'd say, of African people living in England and I'd say not even the experience, really, of the white working class. But it seems the eyes of the white working class are closed because many of them queued for more than 24 hours, you know, to see the body of, of the Queen. And this is really a person who had no interest in them, you know, and has accumulated personal wealth off the back of African people and the back of the British uh, working class. So it's been an interesting time that through covert uh, pressure. If you have another view of the monarchy and of the queen, there are not many places that you can voice that view. So for me, it's really important to be able to um, speak with you tonight about, I think, how the, the African community um, feels here, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, what how we think about queen. I mean, myself uh, born here and my parents being from a Commonwealth uh, country and also you know, uh, an ex-slave plantation. You know, my parents believed strongly in the Queen and in England as the mother country and came here in the late 1950s. But I think throughout that time, and that's the time of the the reign of Queen Elizabeth um, uh, II, you know, their view has changed, you know, because of the way that they were were invited here to work and they were treated as little more uh, than animals. And that's how we were treated also as the children of the first generation of immigrants. So 
our experience of England is not one of a place that is run by a benevolent queen. You know, it's of a harsh country that doesn't like people of African um, descent and puts obstacles uh, in our way in terms of uh, progress. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a, a topic that, you know, many uh, people of African descent, Caribbean people, people of colour, you know, they have something to say about it and perhaps a different view from the dominant um, uh, narrative, which is a global narrative. Thank you for that. There's a lot that can be said about um, the United Kingdom, uh, the Queen, the monarch, the empire, and all that has happened all over the world. Uh, you know, our special focus would be just Africa, not to disrespect or disregard any horror that had happened outside the continent. And there is so much that's been said by the media to try and eulogize uh, the Queen. Just to go back a little bit, just trying to get into the subject now, I will rerun what I've mentioned in the beginning, a quote by W.E.B. Du Bois, and I want you to take it from there. Just tell us about Europe and how Africa was before the Europeans discovered Africa in the 15th century. I know probably we can go back as far as 1492, the journey mm-hmm. of Columbus and yeah. the, the discovery, continent called the discovery of America, which is quite interesting. The boy says... The rebirth of civilization in Europe began in the 15th century. At this time, Africa and Asiatic civilizations far outstripped Europe. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've um, studied African history, um, both within an, Af- uh, an academic institution in a university in the UK, but, but also for myself, you know, through my uh, involvement in organisations. So I've also studied African history through the eyes of African in- historians, and you get a totally um, different view. But through um, that study, you know, you begin to realise that um, this view an image that has been given over all these centuries of the dark continent that was uncivilized and barbaric, that Europe went there to um, civilize and bring into the light, you begin to realize that that actually, you know, was was false, that that was a lie and that was a distortion. You know, so when when you look at um, uh, African history, you know, you see that uh, by the 1500s, African societies, you know, had, had developed far more than um, uh, Europe. We we all know about um, ancient Egypt. We all know about uh, the the um, uh, pyramids. But, you know, Africa was actually essentially the birthplace of humanity and, and should be seen as the cradle of uh, civilization and has made an immense contribution to the world. You know, so Kemet is a, a, a Egypt is obviously a, a, a great example. But not only were there pyramids um, in Egypt, Egypt had also um, devised the written script. They also had a calendar. They did mathematics, geology and uh, algebra. The Egyptians had learned uh, agriculture. Uh, I began uh, practicing um, uh, mechanics and, you know, they had a deep philosophy and religion, which we now know that uh, the uh, Egyptian scholars went to Egypt, you know, to learn about uh, philosophy. We also know that uh, Africa had the first university uh, in Timbuk, you know, in Timbuk too. We know of the great states of Zimbabwe and the great kingdom of, of Ghana as early as the 8th century, which is 800 years before the birth of Christ. We know that North Africans actually uh, crossed into the Iberian uh, penins- Peninsula and, and founded a black state known as uh, Cordoba in the 8th century, as I said. And through that state, the learning from North Africa was taken into um, Europe. Africa was far from un, uh, far from barbaric uh, and uncivilized. Uh, we had a, a, a developed trading system, trading in um, gold. It was a regional and international uh, system stretching from the west, stretching from the west coast across the Sahara to North Africa, and it was sustained by the mining of gold in um, West Africa. We know of other great empires, as I've said, Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. So, you you know, um, I think when uh, the facts about um, Africa are, are written, we know that when 
Europe met Africa at that time in the 1500s. You know, Africa had many uh, developed societies, but not only kingdoms, it also had smaller uh, organizations. And when we look at those those smaller, um, what can I call them, perhaps towns, uh, and the way that they were uh, organized, they were organized in a, a collective uh, way to benefit um, the people. So indeed, Europe met um, an advanced uh, culture, more advanced than theirs. And as you mentioned, um, W.E. Du, uh, du Bois, as he said, and other African historians um, point out, Europe was only able to uh, conquer Africa due to its technological advancement. And that was primarily the use of the gun and gunpowder. And the, the stolen that gunpowder or they uh, extracted it from China. It's not like it was something of their own making and the yes. kind of development. You had mentioned something about the Greeks, you know, coming to land in Africa. I think it deploys to in Africa and the world, or the world in Africa. He speaks yeah. about that, and uh, I think uh, another scholar, a great scholar on, on the subject of underdevelopment of Africa by the Europeans is uh, uh, Walter Rodney, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. You know, That's I true. once learned of a, fl- a fact, too, that Pythagoras, the one that we know to be the master of mathematics, Yeah. You know, we've been educated that way that the Europeans are the masters, were the originators of mathematics. I learned that he spent 22 years in, in Kemet, which the Greeks ended up changing to Egypt. He was yeah. in Africa for 22 years uh, learning mathematics. So I'm just portraying your point there on how Africa was uh, the cradle of um, civilization and culture. And uh, the yeah. latter or learning comes from Africa and then the whole world had to benefit from that. Yeah, I think what is important is why Europe developed, you know, this racist and white supremacist ideology about Africa, uh, you know, and spread it throughout its um, educational uh, institutions right up until, as I said, the the late 1950s when my parents came. They believed Mm -hmm. they were coming to the motherland, which was more advanced than, you you know, the Caribbean island and definitely more advanced than Africa. Africa. So that that propaganda and that false narrative, you know, lasted for, again, for, you know, over a hundred years and continues really to this present day. But it, at least it's been challenged uh, by um, African a- uh, academics and historians. To talk a little bit more on that, ra- on that race issue, because people tend to suggest that it's Britain who invented racism as much as it has spread throughout the Caucasian community in Europe. Is there an, anything else that you can say about that that invasion, excuse me, invention of racism? My, my studies have shown that um, really prior to, you know, the Atlantic slave trade, there, there are not many records of the uh, contact between different peoples being uh, a racist one. In fact, um, Europe and Africa had, had been trading and, and Africa and, uh, you know, Asia had been trading for thousands of years, you know, but had not, you know, established um, a, a negative um, relationship. That negative relationship um, and the development of um you know, racism and uh, white superiority. You you can see it um, being developed in the with the writers and the philosophers in in Europe as the the slave trade uh, and colonialism uh, developed. So you know, many uh, academics have shown you know that uh, slavery developed first, colonization developed, and racism was developed followed as a justification for what they were doing. So when we look at ancient records of contacts between Africans and Europeans and Africans and Arabs and Asians, you know, we we, we don't see, you, you know, that focus on superiority and inferiority. You know, you can you can actually see, you know, uh, put the timeline on the development of, uh, the, you know, racism, you know, from from around about, you know, the 1800s. So as uh, Britain becomes dominant within the slave trade, as it moves into its colonial role in the building of empire, it needs a justification for that. And that narrative was around white superiority 
and the inferiority of, of the African. We all know uh, the extent to which uh, education and religion were also used. They, those were vital tools along with the gun in terms of um, securing the control of uh, Africa, African people and the enslavement of uh, African people. It was vitally important to build within the African a mindset that we came from nowhere and that we had nothing. And that mindset was um, made even stronger by putting um, religion on it and the version of Christianity that we as Africans were given was, was one which said that, um, you know, God had decreed that we should serve uh, the, the, the white man and that you shouldn't rise up against your uh, master. You know, so we're aware of the role of, of the white missionary in terms of encroaching in Africa and aiding, you know, the, the subjugation of, of African people. So that subjugation was done in a number of, of means uh, militarily, which must never be um, forgotten. That force was the most uh, vital weapon that was used, but also education and religion uh, and obviously trade you know, were four important pillars in the penetration of Africa and within perhaps 200 years, you know, um, the, the, the process of underdeveloping developing Africa, you know, had, had become a, a systematic and we see the results of it until today. And the scholarship suggests that science was heavily used too, science of genetics and others. The science of genetics, yes, yeah, uh, or, yeah, was Darwinism. further used to try and prove this point that Africans yeah. are inferior. You know, so... Um, we know when we study uh, great political strategists such as Kwame Nkrumah, you know, we begin to understand that every society has an ideology, a set of ideas. So at the point that Britain went into um, Africa, and at that point when Britain went into Africa, it was under a monarchy. And that monarchy, as its line has continued, to today, today, you know, which is why we're having that that discussion, you know, at that point where uh, Britain went into Africa, it began to develop an ideology to defend, you know, its barbaric um, actions uh, on the continent and in terms of, you know, triangular the triangular slave trade um, as well. Please tell us more about the triangular slave trade. Off the record, we we had spoken about this and the impact that had on population growth and improved food, sanitation, insurance, the maritime, you know, commerce and systems that developed Europe while at the same time discounting Africa. Yes, well, when I was growing up, and uh, obviously I studied in school uh, in England, I went to college after the age of 16, and I also went on um, to have a university education, which many uh, people of African descent then were not, you know, were not able to do because of the the racism that we faced within, um, you know, within the school system. You know, we were taught that Africans were unslaved because they were uncivilized and, and barbaric. And as children, we, you know, we were uh, ashamed. It's only through my own study that I've begun to understand that um, it's the opposite that happened, that, you know, it's it's through the enslavement of Africans and the development of what was called the triangular tra- um, slave trade over 400 years that uh, England and other European countries were actually able to develop and um, in- industrialize. So that's how England was able to go through the Industrial Revolution in the in the 1600s so connections such as you know to make the iron chains that uh, africans were um strapped to to make the ships uh, that went out and sailed to africa you saw the growth of the shipping industry and the iron industry and you know, of fact uh, factories and mechanics uh, within uh, England. You saw the, the, the growth of seaports and from the growth of seaports you then begin to see the growth of towns. As the demand for African slaves grew, the demand for ships um, grew. So the local populations began to gain, you know, they began to gain more uh, employment. You know, as, as uh, more people were needed 
um, to work, more studies began to take place into um, in, into the diet of the people and keeping the people um, healthy and into improving hygiene in, in, in English towns and English cities. So an uh, author called, um, uh, it's not until we start writing about, uh, we start investigating and studying what happened during the slave trade that we see um, that it's it's slavery that actually um, built um, Europe. So uh, an interesting book is uh, Capitalism's, Capitalism and Slavery, written by um, Eric uh, Williams. And he shows very clearly, you know, that um, before the slave trade, England was quite underdeveloped. The population was very sickly. It was... Uh, you know they were they were having plagues and smallpox and all these illnesses wiping out the uh, population. The majority of the people lived on the land and they were serfs or peasants to the lords. And then the lords owed their allegiance to the the crown and the church. So this is you know when we look at the structure and the history of England, we need to understand that this is where. Uh, Elizabeth II, the queen who was just passed, this is where um, she, you know, she she comes from, you know, so we see um, through the transportation of Africans, African labor to the Americas and to the colonies, the colonies are then able to um, export sugar, spices, fruits, you know, to the Western world to improve the diet of of the people and through the demand for slavery. We see the growth of uh, major industry and, in fact, the Industrial Revolution in England. So the reality is um, slavery built the, the West. It built America, North America, and it built England and other parts of Europe. Can you tell us about, you know, from the record, we learned that uh, England decided to stop or abolish slave trade in 1807. And then in 1837, it abolished uh, slavery. Why did they abolish that? Was it because they were a converted Christian nation or, you know, leadership in, in England that decided, oh, uh, we have so much conscience now that we feel like what we've been doing is wrong or they had some kind of better way to still pillage Africa or something of that nature. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, again, Eric Williams in his book, Capitalism and Slavery, looks at this. And the reality is, is that, you know, over a period of um, 400 years, slavery became unprofitable and more and more dangerous, you know, because every year, you know, Africans were, there were what were called slave um, revolts, you know. So this wasn't a situation of where, uh, Africans just accepted the situation, you know. So, you know, the story of the benevolent abolitionists, again, that's been a strong one, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's very much, um, challenged. Uh, I think there are a number of, um, reasons why the Atlantic slave trade ended. When we look again at, at the, the work of, um, Eric Williams, uh, his book, Capitalism and, and Slavery, he does present ample evidence that there were primarily economic reasons, you know, that that slavery actually became uh, unprofitable for uh, Western, you know, Western uh, countries. One of the, the things to recognize is that um, the slave trade pit the Europeans against each other, you know, so they were constantly battling each other for supremacy in the slave trade. So, you know, that made their relationship, of, you know, a very uh, uneasy one. We also see that with North um, America, which is one of Britain's first um, colonies, you know, I think by the, the mid or late 1700s, uh, there was the American War of Independence and Brit uh, Britain lost 13 colonies. And, you know, obviously North America was one of the, the the main place that African slaves was was going to, so Britain was was no longer getting it, it. It no longer had that monopoly rule over the slave trade in in America. Uh, another reason uh, or factor is the development of what they call the cotton gin and the beginning to grow cotton, and cotton was more lucrative than. Um, 
sugar and obviously we begin to see the you know the the replacement of human labor with with um machines so there's a number of um factors that made it um less uh profitable to continue the slave trade so i wouldn't say that there were not some europeans who felt morally that slavery was wrong but that was not the primary reason for the ending of of the slave trade let's uh, come back to the motherland uh, after the slavery has been abolished we find various acts of murder and pillage in africa by the british monarch and the british sailors or the capitalist british settlers you name them in africa they've committed all kinds of offense in the book rape murder or genocide killing a lot of animals trying to profit out of that so the profit out of human beings profit out of vegetation profit out of <laughs> animals and all that can you take us through uh, the involvement of the british in such and related offenses against africa which perpetuated the underdevelopment of africa and there's obviously some of the you know the horrors in the, in kenya the mau mau movement and yeah. all that yeah yeah i think one of the the things i found quite interesting was uh, queen elizabeth ii she became queen in 1952 and that's also the year that the, the kenyan people launched the mau mau uh, movement for you know in independence and obviously kenya was a british um empire and we come you know to learn of the virtual genocide of the mau mau uh, people that was committed um you know by the british government you know um between 1952 and 1960 but not only in in kenya when we look at you know south africa you, you know we we see that the you know the british were in there and they you, you know used armed uh war you know against the in, indigenous people you know to and put the people into what are actually described as um concentration camps you know and the the literature says uh and that included over 22 um thousand um children so you know this is at the turn of the 20th the turn of the uh 20th um century so you know as you said there were other places but um let us uh you know concentrate on um africa i remember growing up as a child and what was known as the biafran war in uh nigeria uh biafra were a people in uh you know eastern nigeria and on on the tv in england you know every day we had the images of these um starving uh children you know with with large um bellies you know and flies um all around them but we didn't know at the time that Britain was actually uh you know financing the the Nigerian government in uh, which is a government that it put in place you know against the Biafran people so i'm not saying here that the Biafra should have uh seceded from Nigeria what i'm saying is that uh England played a direct role in the um you know almost again genocide of the biafran uh people so i think there're just so many um atrocities that have been committed you know um throughout that independence um period and throughout the you know and that independence period actually coincides with the reign of queen elizabeth um the second and you know some people want to say that um she was a forward looking queen because she um you know led africa asia um to independence but that that's not the case what we can see when we look at uh, history is that those people were moving to independence and she actually was the figurehead of the western countries that were trying to stem that independence and we now know that even when um formal colonialism ended you know britain still had control over its its former uh colonies so whether that control is through um the commonwealth or the relations with uh, the independent uh, so called independent african countries 
we know that England continues to um, extract wealth out of um, Africa. So, you know, um, looking at the, the Elizabeth II, because that's what, you know, we wanted to talk about and her reign, you know. And they say, is it is it the longest one, the longest reign of a queen or the second of a monarch, you know, from 1952 to 2022? You know, when we look at, at, at that reign, what, what we see is the growing resistance of, you know, uh, dominated people. We see their resistance and we see that um, the, the West and England in particular, they can't stop the uh, independence movement. So... Instead of trying to stop it, they quickly decide, you know, to try and subvert it and to control it. So they decide that they will, on the outside, give up power and give political power to the natives, as we were known as then. But they will, in fact, continue to control the economies of those countries and where they can't control those economies they will assassinate leaders and put uh, puppets in place so that in fact is in terms of uh, Queen Elizabeth's relationship to uh, Africa it's an extension of, of the monarch's relationship to slavery you know from the 15-1600s it's, it's a continued unbroken thread it's just that now we have a massive media system that can spin a lie about someone and, you know, people choose uh, to believe that lie. Mm. You have mentioned the shift from colonialism or colonization to neocolonialism, which is a process where they're no longer on the ground controlling things, controlling government, but they do it while being away and having puppets, leaders that they control in the African space and states. I just want to go back a little bit if you were to talk about the impact of World War II in helping the independence of Africans instead of they, that is the Europeans, the English, being nice guys and deciding that they are just giving people independence. Can you talk to us about that, how it impacted the independence struggle in Africa, that yeah, is World War II? Yeah, you know, so first of all, it wasn't a world war. It was a European war. And again, it, you know, uh, it was continuation of the rivalry, particularly between Germany, England, France, you know, for dominance in Europe, and also for control of colonies, because that's where the wealth, you know, that's where the, the wealth was coming from. So uh, England and the other Western powers, obviously, they mobilized their colonial subjects to come and fight for them. And um, uh, that's what they they did. So, you know, Africans traveled, uh, you know, abroad to, you know, to fight for England. And um, as a re result of that, at the end of the war, England in particular was actually financially devastated. The, the involvement of so-called colonial subjects uh, in the war had the uh, unintended consequence of those colonial subjects when they returned, um, taking the view that why should they give their lives for the mother country and remain as subjects? So having fought in the wars of their masters, they felt it only right that they should have a reward and that reward should be that they get some level of self-determination. Uh, so that obviously wasn't an in intention of the, of the war, but as people came out of their countries and mixed together, some people didn't even go back. Uh, you know, I, I would say that, you know, Africans began to see more clearly that, you know, they had a right to um, self, you know, self determination. Uh, another factor as well around the war, because I do believe in 1945, that's right, the Fifth Pan-African Congress was held in Manchester, England. So from uh, around 1900, Africans had been organising Pan-African conferences and trying to bring like-minded like Africans together. But this, you know, this was was difficult and there were long periods of nothing happening in between the the war and the end of the war allowed for Africans and others to meet in England. They met on the back of um, another conference. I, I, I've, I've forgotten the name 
of, of that conference, but they were able to organize, they were able to travel and then meet separately and hold the fifth uh, Pan-African um, uh, Congress. So, uh, and that that Congress actually called for, you know, the, the liberation movement and for um, all of the countries to form mass organizations to agitate for self-determination. Um, I mean, at that point, African people weren't talking about armed struggle, but it wasn't long after 1945 that, you know, it went from, um, you know, political agitation, you know, to, to armed struggle as well. Yeah, we remember doing a little bit of reading around the Pan-African Congress, beginning from the conference in the 1900s 900, by Sylvester, yeah. Sylvester Williams from Trinidad and Tobacco. So, because many of these uh, congresses were, the meetings were outside the continent. And at first, yeah. we didn't have much representation from yeah, the motherland. It was more... To meet. Yes, yes. It yeah, was the... more from the diaspora Africa and people like Du Bois carried the torch until people like Krumah were able to be in attendance in 1945 in Manchester. I remember that much. So we had a lot of these Pan-Africanists and those who were working and fighting for independence in attendance there. And that yeah. kind of fueled, you know, the independence struggle, the war to having not done good business to Europeans as they were fighting for Africa and other uh, nations' uh, resources. Well, you have spoken about the legacy of the Queen somehow in your analysis of uh, Britain's underdevelopment of the African continent and the people. I just want us to talk about, you know, most of the time the Queen was moving around with a very fancy crown, I think made of gold and other things. And people are of the view that the Queen and the monarchy is one of the richest people on earth. If, in fact, the richest people in London. Or not, I mean, let me not say London, but richest people in the UK and probably one of the richest institutions in the world or people in the world. Some people tend to say that that which she was wearing on the head as a crown was stolen from Africa. Can you talk us about the wealth of the Queen? Also, these things, these allegations about these things that have been stolen from Africa. Well, you know, I guess no one expects their Queen or their King to be poor, you know. But I think when um, one person and one family, one dynasty can have so much wealth, you know, it's it, it really is unacceptable. And it's unacceptable in 2022 that the people of England are prepared to accept, a, you know, a feudal monarchy and claim to be a democracy. You know, I really think it's it's unacceptable. I mean, the, the Sunday Times, they produce what they call a rich list, which is of the richest people in the world. And in 2020, they estimated the Queen's personal wealth to be £350 million and that she's the 372nd most richest person in the UK. Now, I mean, you know, England is not the poorest country in the world, but there is poverty in England. So for one person and one family to have access to 350 million pounds, you know, it's, it's, it's really um, unacceptable. That's a personal wealth. Then you have what they call the Royal Collection, you know, thousands of historic works of art and the crown jewels. And they are all held in what they call trust by uh, Elizabeth II for her successors and the nation. But I can tell you, I've lived here for decades and I've never got anything from those jewels held in trust. So they're not held in trust for the nation. They're for her, her family. Many people, tourists, when they come to England, they want to see Buckingham uh, Palace and Windsor Castle, which is, you know, it's, were two of her many uh, uh, residences. It said that the, the the monarchy or the queen as a property portfolio valued at 472 um, million uh, pounds and that the crown estate and, and its holdings 
is worth £14.3 billion. Um, pounds. You know, so there is a clear link between the monarchy and Elizabeth II uh, with the accumulation of capital and the accumulation of wealth, you know, and it's time that uh, people saw, you know, saw, saw the truth, you know, that the monarchy in uh, Western society now in the 21st century, you know, is, is just like the banking system. It's just another arm of the capitalist system for acquiring, acquiring and maintaining control over wealth. And that wealth doesn't even trickle down to the people, you know. So, um, yes. Yeah, it seems, it seems like there is a link between the wealth of the king, the queen or the monarchy in Africa. And some may argue that that's Africa's wealth. If it's held in trust for the nation, nation of England, that shouldn't be because that belongs to Africa. All the, art, uh, the, the artifacts and the, the gold, the, yeah, the, yeah. the various minerals, the, the wealth that they've got, you know, you know, other people even go to an extent of talking about the teams that we follow, Manchester United, Liverpool, that they were built from profits that were made from slavery. So yeah. you see that these development of UK in various dimension, you know, the railway lines, cities, uh, these various buildings, probably even the palaces, were built on the backs of Africans. So in every dimension, Britain cannot brag about anything or any wealth without giving credit where it is due. And now I hear that there have been, you know, calls for reparation in, in Kenya for yeah. the millions that were killed. I don't know if you have anything to say about that in conclusion. And with that breath, if you can also just talk about if there can be any accountability for, for the one who has just ascended to the throne, King Charles, if he <laughs> can be brought in into this, you know, very misty or very dirty uh, history of uh, the monarchy in, in England. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a strong reparations movement in, uh, in England, in, in Britain, you know, led by uh, African people from uh, different backgrounds, and as we know, there's a strong reparations movement in the the, the USA, and you know, in more recent years, um, African governments uh, are coming forward uh, and you know asking for the the return of stolen um, jewels and and uh, uh, and things like that, and also seeking uh, reparations for you know the murder. Of, of their people. As we know, uh, I think some of the Mau Mau receive some kind of, uh, com- you know, receive some kind of compensation. So although um, I believe Prince William not so long ago um, apologised for slavery, they have never gone as far as um, admitting responsibility um, for it. So I think that that reparation struggle, that will um, continue you know, but I am of the view that until until we have a united Africa with a strong uh, Pan-African government, you know, that has a clear vision of independence, you, you know, we, we, we won't achieve uh, repre- that, the reparations because I believe power only concedes to um, power. You know, when when we um, uh, go to the Europeans as single governments, you know, Kenyan or Nigeria or, you know, um, I think we're going in a weak, uh, a weakened position. You know, th- this is a task for a united uh, continental uh, a government, you know, and then then they will listen. And, you know, this is also a case of where we need to understand that neocolonialism means that the unfair relationship between Africa and the West um, continues. So uh, the West continues to live off the extraction of resources from Africa at an extremely cheap um, level. Once Africa unites and begins to use its wealth as bargaining chips rather than just allowing it to be sold off and stolen, you know, I think then we'll see real discussions about um, reparations uh, you know once, once they know they can't get the lithium the gold the diamonds you know uh, by, by causing trouble and dissent 
which is what they've been doing over the past 400 years, once they can't do it that way and they have to come around the table and negotiate uh, for, for those things, um, then we're, we're really on the path um, to reparations. But in principle, I believe in the, the, the demand um, for reparations uh, in terms of polit- politics, I believe that um, that demand should be led by a, a united all African government and not only by individual countries or, you know, tribes of people. So um, the, 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 the Prince Charles, well, we have a saying, and I believe it's in, in England as well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So Queen Elizabeth II is the tree and her son, Prince Charles, is the apple. Just as Queen Elizabeth continued the legacy of her father and her father continued the legacy of the, the king before, and all of them going all the way back to 1066 when the, the first king, William the Conqueror, ruled um, England. The monarchy has con- con- continued to serve its, its purpose, which is the accumulation of wealth for an elite within um, British society. And I believe that uh, Prince Charles will, will continue um, that role. You know, maybe we'll see him have a little dance with, you know, some local people now and then. But that's just part of the media stunts, uh, you know. So we as Africans need to be careful not to be taken in by these small little changes, you know, and look at the bigger picture. You know, unless there's a fundamental shift in the role of the monarchy, I don't see... Uh, Prince Charles doing anything um, particularly um, different. Yes, he's, you know, he's talking on climate change, you know, but climate change is a soft subject compared to Europeans owning up and paying, you know, uh, reparations for what they've done, you know, and climate change is a soft subject, you know, compared to um, changing the economic system that's been dominating the world for the past 400 years. And I've not heard him speak about that. I've not heard him speak about, you know, the right of all uh, nations to have control over their own um, future and their own, own, own resources. So yes, he can speak on climate change because that's, uh, you know, that's a vision for the future, you know, but the, the, the reality now is that, um, the West and England cannot continue to exist off the exploitation of um, Africa and African people. And we see more and more, you know, um, our, our people resisting in, in the many ways um, that, that we, you know, that they can. You know, the issue now is, is for to have African governments and African leaders that are prepared to work together, you know, to... Um, Build a system in Africa that, you know, is reflects uh, African culture and puts the people first, you know, and protects the wealth of, of the continent because Africa is the richest continent in the world. You know, if, if you're living on riches, how can your people be poor? Somewhere bad decisions are being made. So, you know, just as Prince Charles will continue his legacy, you know, I call on um, African politicians, you know, to, to continue continue the legacy of the great warriors, you know, uh, of, of the great leaders who, who built, you know, where we, we started, you know, with Kemet, you know, the great philosophers, the great um, uh, doctors, the great engineers of, of Africa, you know, um, the, the great fighters, Shaka Zulu, you know, the Queen Nzinga of Angola who fought against um, occupation, you know, that, that we need to reconnect with the legacy of resistance, you know, and, and, and just stop sitting in these meetings in suits, <laughs> you know, reconnect yeah. to the legacy of resistance and, and really come together, you know, and, and defend Africa and, and defend our people and return dignity to, to our people. So we have a legacy of resistance and that's what we should we should be continuing. Yeah, just as a, I, I might butcher this quote from a Fran, is it Franz Fanon who talks about it every generation. It's a quote. It's is is it its own? Um, uh, must fulfill its own destiny. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that every generation has got its own 
is it mandate or what or or, or purpose and it it, it is yeah, their duty yeah, to find yeah. it and also yeah so yeah you've spoken about the unification of africa i know you uh you've uh, been an organizer for 30 years for the all african people's revolutionary party of which uh, at some point you were able to meet with Kwame Ture, former Aristotle Michael in England when he used to come there and organize. But I want to just ask to conclude on the issue of unification of Africa. And before I go there, I just want to portray the point that it seems like the global north is feeding on the global south and uh, Europe is, is so much feeding on Africa. And without Africa, the Europe cannot be there really. Economically, I think their house will crumble. Even when I talk about the global south, I mean North America, I, know, I mean Europe. So much of what they have it comes from uh, the, the motherland. If you were to close the motherland, the so-called booming economy of stock trading will go down. That will be history, as mm. far as I look at it. But um, on the unification of Africa, it's liberation, and you you have had a call or an appeal to the African leaders, if you can just conclude with an appeal to the youth of Africa, because that's where the future lies of Africa, what will you say to them in concluding remarks? Uh, you know, I'd say to them that the youth have always proved to be the most um, revolutionary in society, you know, because, you know, they, they really are the fruits of the revolution. You know, you build society and you fight for its changes for those who are going to come, you know, so they, they need to take up the mantle now and, you know, fight for their their own dignity and change, you know, their own um, societies, you know, so we, you know, we need to, um, I guess, look at those internal factors that are holding back uh, change and really try and understand them and look to dismantle them because although Europe has taken over 400, 500 years to install this unfair system and they've used many means, as 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 I've uh, indicated earlier, if there were not people inside of Africa, the Caribbean, wherever, if there were not people who who didn't collude with them or didn't allow them in or turn their face, you know, wouldn't be so, so easy, you know. So the youth who love Africa and who love themselves, you know, they, they need to be educated, get themselves into organization, you know, become politicized and, and take up positions within society and make change. You know, it's time for the old guard to go, you know, because with them will go a certain uh, mentality of, of of dependency and a, and a fear of of change, you know. So for me, the youth are uh, the the future, and they have a right to regain their dignity and to control, you know, control their lives. So take up the struggle, be at the forefront of it. Thank you so much, Sister Maxine, for the analysis on the subject of Britain and how it has underdeveloped Africa, and Thank it you. has pillaged and uh, caused all kinds of horror and crimes okay. and uh, it's, it's, it's been a, just a terrible experience with uh, this empire whom we are yeah. told that the sun never sets but yeah, on a yeah. quick one just in 30 seconds can you give people where they can find you any social media handles like twitter facebook and stuff like that before uh, we run out just about 30 seconds or so at aaprp-intl.org so at aaprp-intl.org i'll take you to the aaprp website yeah, thank you so much yeah. for coming through i appreciate right, it thank you